So, uh, hey everybody. Remember yesterday when I said that I wanted to wait to see what happened when more details came out about this and we were sitting and waiting because like 10 minutes after we got off air yesterday and that was when the press conference was going to be coming out from Boulder and we were going to find out the details of who did the shooting and what kind of weapon he used and all that fun kind of stuff right there. Boy, did that ever change the narrative here. So we'll talk all about that and what happened there and what the fallout was from that because I've got a few interesting tweets and a bunch of other fun stuff to go along with that. But in other news, Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell come out and start talking about how great it's going to be, how they're going to fix the economy, and the stocks drop off at the end of the day. So we'll talk just a bit about what's happening there. Senator Duckworth came out and said that she's going to block all of Biden's nominees who are not people of color. So we'll talk just a bit about what's going on with that. And Bernie Sanders is not comfortable with Trump's Twitter ban. It's going to be all of this and more. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Oh my God, people, what a difference a day makes. What a difference we have just between what we saw yesterday, talking about the shooting in Boulder, and what we saw... Well, actually, let's go back a little bit and what we saw the day before yesterday and what we saw yesterday, because yesterday was kind of a fucking dumpster fire. As people were coming out, and all the MAGA people were out there screaming, Oh my God, it's a Muslim. Look how little Muslim terrorism we had when, when Trump was in here. Oh my God, oh my God. And everybody on the left, who had just immediately spent the previous seven hours screaming about the fact that this was another white man who just came out and decided he was a white Trump Republican and he decided he needed to go shoot up a grocery store in Boulder. Everybody changed their minds immediately and it was, it was a mess. And we get to talk about it. Plus all kinds of other stuff, but before we get into any of the news... Head on over and bookmark freedomscoop.com. We are set to premiere our brand new, shiny new website on April 17th in the 24-hour live stream for charity that we have coming up next month. We have got a slate of guests coming up. Elaine just got done. Well, she's not really done with it yet. She's just got a first draft done, but uh, she's got some amazing promotional material that's out there. I'm going to get some stuff printed out here, hang it up, see if we can get some more people seeing just from the local audience here because... I, I'm known around the country, and I see the places some of you guys say that you're from, Oklahoma, Illinois, New York sometimes, uh, Massachusetts a few times, California. I see the places you guys say that you're from, but I'm relatively little known here in town, so maybe we'll get some uh, people here local as well to come back and support a great cause. Definitely looking forward to that here, but... Otherwise, head on over and check out my friends, The Generational Gap, The Daily Ignoramus, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, The R-Rated Conservative, and The Freckles and Brit Show, all over there on the Freedom Scoop Media Group. Definitely looking forward to seeing those guys and hanging out with them. Um, Freckles and Brit are not going to be able to make it for the live stream. Both of them are booked, unfortunately, but we do still have great guests coming from all around the rest of the Freedom Scoop Network, so definitely come back, check all of them out, and check out the live stream we have coming up on April 17th. All right, looking into the Dow. So I've got a block of articles here talking about what happened right before that happened. For those of you listening back on the audio, about uh, 
I would say 1.30 p.m. local time, 2.30 p.m. Washington, D.C. time, everything just kind of fell off and boom, down. And yeah, it was after Jerome Powell and uh, Janet Yellen decided they wanted to talk about what they were going to do to save the stocks here. So looking at that, looking and seeing what the market is doing, it's down. Uh, the futures look like they're going to be down again. We will read a little bit more into that once we get to Investor's Business Daily. So look forward to that. I had a tweet, though, I wanted to say that, you know, I really thought that this summed up what we had to say here. Uh, Nick over on Twitter, that is Intranick, he's also on Gab at Intranick, if you want to go and check him out over there, tweets out, every time Biden's treasury opens of a chart going downwards. It's the best way I could think to put it. Go over there and give Nick a follow. He's a good guy. He's a good follow, too. And go check him out. And I mean, like I said, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Give that just a second to think here because it looks like we got a freeze up. All right, let's move on here. Looking at the Bitcoin. 56,751 US dollars and no cents. So we went down a little bit yesterday. We're going back up again, fifty to six or fifty-five to sixty thousand U.S. dollars per Bitcoin. I think is where we're going to sit for this for a little while. It might go up after that, but it looks like that's where we're going to sit solidly for a little while here. And the gas is still holding steady at two fifty-three all across the board in the Greater Madison area. Let's see what IBD has to say. Dow, tech stocks fall, as Powell calls U.S. economy, much improved. Boeing in a buy range, while Tesla rallies from Scott Latonin. The Dow Jones Industrial Average briefly fell over 100 points Tuesday before slashing losses, as Fed Chief Jerome Powell called the U.S. economy much improved. Treasury yields backed off from recent highs, EV giant Tesla briefly reversed higher, while chip giants applied materials and NVIDIA stocks are the ones to watch. Among the Dow Jones leaders, Apple fell 0.6% Tuesday while Microsoft moved up 0.8% in today's stock market. Boeing is back in a buy range following a recent breakout. Tesla briefly reversed higher on Tuesday morning following Monday's 2.3% gain. Among the top stocks to watch, chip leaders Applied Materials, ASML, MKS Instruments, NVIDIA, and Corvo are showing leadership potential in the current stock market rally, which means that people are going out and buying new phones because Applied Materials, MKS Instruments, uh, and Corvo are all involved with phones, and then people are probably going out and buying new computers because that's where we see NVIDIA as well. So looks like people are either setting up to work from home or... They worked from home and they decided they needed a new computer and now that the economy is opening back up, they can do it. Either way, people are buying computer stuff. Meanwhile, Alphabet and Wayfair are in or near buy zones. Alphabet was featured in this week's Stocks Near Buy Zone column while Wayfair was Monday's IBD50 Stocks to Watch pick. So, if you need a kid from the book, whoop, nope, never mind, Wayfair doesn't do that. Alphabet, Microsoft, and NVIDIA are IBD leaderboard stocks. MKS Instruments was a recent IBD stock of the day. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dipped less than 0.1% while the S&P 500 moved up 0.15%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite again turned lower midday following 0.1%. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later here with uh, Powell and Yellen because I've got a block of stuff to them. 
Let's see if I've got something from the futures. Nope, nothing from the futures here. All right, let's go on. Let's see what CNBC has to say quickly. Dow closes 300 points lower as Caterpillar leads afternoon slide. From Yoon Lee and Pippa Stevens. U.S. stocks fell on Tuesday in an afternoon slide led by shares of companies with the most to lose if there are any hiccups in the global economic reopening from the COVID-19 pandemic. The S&P 500 declined 0.8% to 39.1052, pressured by industrials and materials. Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 308.05, or 0.9% to 32.423.15, as Caterpillar slipped, and 3.4%. Uh, the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite slid 1.1% to 13.227.70. The small-cap Russell 2000 dropped 3.6% to 2185.69 for its worst day since June. Travel and retail stocks sold off in lockstep amid fresh uh, COVID restrictions globally. Shares of Carnival, Norwegian Cruise Line, slumped more than 7%. Is this the one we read yesterday? This is the same article that we looked at yesterday. Never mind. Let's look into the big news of the day. All right, from the New York Post. Police identify 21-year-old Ahmad al al Iwi Alyssa, a suspect in Boulder shooting. That is a lot of things that start with an A. I'm guessing he was the first on his roster in class. From Leah Eustowich and Aaron Feiss. A 21-year-old Syrian-born man was identified Tuesday as the alleged uh, Colorado supermarket shooter who killed 10 people, including a police officer with records revealing that he had posted online about Islamophobia and once cold-cocked a high school bully. <clears throat> Ahmad al-Alui Alyssa of Arvada, and of course he's got to be from Arvada on top of this, of Arvada, Colorado now faces 10 counts of first-degree murder for the rampage he allegedly unleashed Monday afternoon in a King Supers grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, where some shoppers were out getting COVID-19 vaccines, officials said at a Tuesday briefing. <clears throat> we will hold the evildoer responsible to the full extent of the law for his actions, said Democratic Governor Jared Polis, and we will always remember the victims of the King's super shooting, which tells me already that he said the evildoer. <clears throat> he didn't say Aliwi or Alyssa or whatever the hell the guy's last name is. And we need to pivot now and focus on the victims. Alyssa's now-deleted Facebook page said he was born in Syria in 1999, came to the U.S. in 2002, the Daily Beast reported. His account included postings about Islam, such as the Father's Prayer and religious holidays, and his apparent suspension, uh, suspicions rather that he was under surveillance. Yeah, if these racist Islamophobic people would stop hacking my life phone and let me have a normal life, I probably could, he wrote in a July 2019 post, according to the Daily Beast. In a different post, Alyssa shared another person's thoughts of the day after the 2019 mosque massacres in Christchurch, New Zealand that killed 51 people. The Muslims at the Christchurch mosque were not victims of a single shooter. The reposted message reportedly read, they were victims of the entire Islamophobia industry that vilified them. Alyssa's identity was known to the FBI because he was linked to another individual under investigation by the Bureau. Law enforcement sources told the New York Times, a former newspaper, 
though the report didn't say who that person was or what they were being probed for. Alyssa, who was shot in the leg and hospitalized in stable condition, was expected to be transferred to a local jail Tuesday. Court documents released later in the day showed he had purchased a Ruger AR-556 pistol on March 16th and revealed chilling details from witnesses of the shooting. Authorities have already interviewed Alyssa, but they did not disclose Tuesday what, if anything, he said about his motive. Why did this happen? asked Boulder County District Attorney Michael Doherty. At the briefing, we don't have the answer to that yet, but the investigation is in its very early stages. And a lot of people have been going back and forth with this and trying to decide what actually happened with this and why he did this. It is interesting, and a lot of people have pointed out the juxtaposition of the Syria bombing that happened just a couple weeks ago, when all of us said that we were on our way back to war, and now a kid who was originally from Syria, born in Syria, went out and shot up a grocery store. <clears throat> there also was speculation to the fact that he had planned on going and shooting up a Trump rally on the 17th, but that Trump rally was delayed or shut down due to COVID restrictions. So this is just a charming fellow here. Uh, a lot of other speculations are coming out that, well, it's funny that we keep saying this because he was a, he was an anti-Trump Muslim and now he's... Which, I'm not going to bring religion into this. Except to point out, and I'm not even going to bring religion into this uh, full-on because Islam... <clears throat> That may wind up being some of the motive off of this, but all in all, that just feeds fuel into the fire and into the divisiveness of this. But I do want to point out the fact that, yes, this is the Syrian-born person was supposedly the whitest of the white. You know, he was taken into custody and not killed because he was white instead of brown. Now they're jumping out to conclusions, looking for a reason to disarm you. And we'll talk a bit about that, too. The reasons to disarm you. Because they thought this dude was white. So there's a lot to unpack with this, and there's still going to be more coming out with this. Except for the fact that I do think that the mainstream media outlets are going to stop covering this now that they know that it's an inconvenient truth. We'll still get some stuff from the Gateway Pundit, the Daily Beast, stuff like that, but... For the most part, you're never going to see anything like this on CNN once again. And it does look like they're trying hard to move the to move the narrative on beyond this here. I've got one here, a tweet from Amy Siskin that says, "Let's mourn the excuse me, let's mourn the victims but not glorify the killer with the attention of having his name widely known." To which our friend Jessica Green tweeted back a gif of uh, Ross screaming, "Pivot! Pivot!" because that's what it is. I mean, it's a pivot at this point. <clears throat> and uh, Autumn Fox, who is another friend of the network, a uh, friend of Freckles and Brits, uh, also tweeted out, you can just say that you found out he isn't white and want to hide that because it doesn't push your false narrative. Which, and that, that seems to be what we were seeing, too, yesterday. It is, it's not the fact that they're trying to do this. I mean, Shapiro is intellectually consistent on this. Shapiro will come out and say, okay, gang, no matter what, we're never going to say the name of anybody who is accused of a mass shooter, no matter what, here. And he's probably going to do the same. Well, no. Shapiro, for a Muslim, he actually might come out and say this dude's name. I haven't listened. I'm a week behind on my podcast, so I don't know what Shapiro's had to say about this yet. But he actually might come out because of the total religion of peace off of this. And he might come out and say, 
Okay, gang, Ahmad Alyssa. Okay, he's a total piece of crap, okay? This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna say the name just for this guy because everyone wanted to say that he was white and he's clearly not white. Listen to this, Ahmad Alyssa, Ahmad Alyssa. Okay, okay, gang. He might do that, I don't I don't wanna lay an accusation on the dude that of something that he didn't do because I'm so far behind on my podcast, but. Uh, we were all ready to come back and see. And like I said, Shapiro is, he's intellectually consistent with this. Nicholas Cruz, okay, we're not, Nicholas Cruz was the last one that he actually said on the air, and then he decided, he made the rule after that. Okay, we're never going to say the name of the shooter, okay. They're looking for attention when they go out there. They make these mass shootings because they want the attention. We're not going to give them the attention, and we're just going to say the shooter from here on out. Whereas it seems like people like Siskind were ready to come out and bolster the name of this dude. The same thing with the Las Vegas shooter, and the same thing with the dude down in Atlanta. They all want to come out and say the names when the people are white. But now that it's Ahmad, Alyssa, just remember the victims. Let's mourn the victims. Let's not focus on the name. All right, let's take another story here. I've got one from ABC News. We're going to see if there's anything different out of yesterday's story from there. Ten people are, sorry, ten killed in Boulder shootings. Victims identified suspect charge. The victims range in age from 20 to 65, from Emily Shapiro, Ivan Pereira, and Jeffrey Cook. Ten people, including a police officer, were killed in Boulder, Colorado, on Monday afternoon when a gunman opened fire at a King Supers grocery store where residents had gathered to shop and receive COVID-19 vaccines. The victims range in age from 20 to 65, Boulder Police Chief Morris Harold said. The slain officer, 51-year-old Eric Talley, was the first member of law enforcement to arrive on the scene. Harold said he was shot in the head, according to an arrest warrant affidavit. Well, at least you didn't suffer. Usually when you take one to the head, it's pretty much over at that point. The other victims were identified as Denny Stong, 20, Nevin Stanisic, 23, Ricky Olds, 25, Trollola Bartkowiak, 49, Suzanne Fountain, 59, Terry Liker, 51, Kevin Mahoney, 61, Lynn Murray, 62, and Jody Waters, 65. The shooting was reported at around 2.40 p.m. local time, police said. Officers arrived within minutes, entering the store and engaging with the suspect, who was shot in the exchange of gunfire, according to police. And I do want to point out something that was tweeted out in bad faith. I decided not to give that tweet the attention, but I just want to point out that there was one person who tweeted out, Oh yeah, hey, I didn't see a bunch of social workers running in there to go fix the situation. Dude, that's in bad taste. That is in horrible taste. I understand the message you're trying to get across here, but even the people who were calling to replace some of the police with social workers did insist that in a deadly situation like this, we should still be use utilizing police, people who volunteered to go into something like this. So that was in horrible taste. The fact that that person tweeted that out. The suspect, 21-year-old Ahmad Al-Alui Alyssa of Arvada, Colorado, suffered a leg wound and was taken into custody at 3.28 p.m. Monday, the chief said. The suspect has been charged with 10 counts of murder. Harold said he was expected to be taken to the Boulder County Jail Tuesday following his release from the hospital. Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty said... Dude, dude does not look 21. I'm sorry. 
The victims were found in the store and in the parking lot. One person was in a car in the lot, according to the arrest warrant affidavit. The chief said he, she lived several blocks from the store. I feel numb. It's heartbreaking, she said at a Tuesday news conference. Talley had been a member of the Boulder Police Department since 2010. He loved his community, the police chief said. He's everything that policing deserves and needs, President Biden said Tuesday. Officer Talley did not hesitate in his duty, making the ultimate sacrifice in his effort to save lives. That's, that's the definition of an American hero. Which it was, too. If they're not out there actually busting you for not hurting anybody, but just having a little bit of a of an illegal substance on you that you intend to put onto your body and not even, or put into your body rather, and not even distribute. Some of these guys actually will run in and try to be the front line to save people. I disagree with a lot of the laws, but I also disagree with the fact that all cops are bastards because they're not. This guy ran in headlong because he knew there was danger and he knew he could be the first line of defense. And he gave his life for it. Tally was a father of seven. He loved his kids and his family more than anything, Tally's father, Homer Tally, said in a statement to ABC News. Tally's father said the late officer joined the police force when he was 40 years old and re recently started training to be a drone operator so he could get a, a job to keep himself off the front lines. He didn't want to put his family through something like this, Homer Tally said. Victim Ricky Olds, 25, was a strong, independent young woman who worked at the grocery store. Her uncle, Robert Olds, told ABC News her boyfriend rushed to the store parking lot in hopes of good news, he said. Well, if that doesn't crack your heart just a little bit, it is too hard to be cracked. She was so loved and she will be so missed, Robert Olds said. We are heartbroken and saddened and devastated. The suspect bought a Ruger AR-556 pistol on Monday, March 16th, according to the arrest warrant affidavit. Biden urged lawmakers on Tuesday to take action by banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Yeah, we'll be talking about that in just a second. Because he's even talking about doing executive action on this at this point. So, yeah, we're looking at a lot of stuff here. You know, there are a lot of people now that are talking about Islamic terrorism again, which... Until we find out the motives, I mean, it's a fair conversation, but we do need to find out what the motives are off of this too, because we can't just go in, yes, he's got an Arabic sounding name. Yes, he t uh, tweeted about Islamophobia. The correlations are there, but let him be judged by 12. At this point. But we will see what happens with this. I'm sure that there's a 50-50 shot that this is either the last we've heard about this or this is going to be wall-to-wall -wall news as they're still trying to push HR8 through the house. So we'll see where this goes. I've got one here from Reuters for you guys. Biden considers executive action on guns, calls on Congress to pass a weapons ban from Trevor Hunnicutt and Susan Cornwell. U.S. President Joe Biden urged Congress to swiftly pass gun control laws and may take action of his own to stop mass violence, the White House said on Tuesday, a day after a second deadly mass shooting in a week. 
The Democrat called on the Senate to approve two bills passed by the House of Representatives on March 11th that would broaden background checks on gun buyers. He also called for a ban on assault-style weapons. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense. There's the danger word right there. Steps that will save the lives of the future. And, and I urge my colleagues in, in the House and Senate to act, Biden said at the White House on Tuesday. Spokeswoman Jen Psaki circled back and told reporters, Biden is considering a range of executive actions to try and stop gun violence. Such actions do not require the approval of Congress. More red flag words coming up out of the government. Biden, who took office in January, pledged during his presidential campaign to enact gun safety measures, but has devoted the first months to distributing coronavirus stimulus and vaccine. On Monday, a gunman killed 10 in Colorado supermarket just six days after eight people were shot and killed. At Atlanta-area day spas, the two shootings put renewed pressure on Biden to act on his promise. The U.S. has the world's highest rate of civilian gun ownership, Rancorp research shows, and a gun fatality rate consistently higher than other rich nations. Wow, okay. There were more than 43,000 U.S. gun deaths last year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. And wasn't a vast majority of those suicide, by the way? People have been breaking down that uh, statistics all day yesterday because, once again, we are forcing, we're looking back at trying to get H.R. 8 through. Our government is trying to push to where you can't just go to a friend and say, okay, well, here you go. Give me 300 bucks. And there it goes. Activists say executive actions that Biden could take right away include strengthening background checks, giving money to cities to fight gun violence because it's money, of course, and regulating the market for ghost guns, partially assembled guns that aren't subject to the same rules as most firearms. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pledged on Tuesday that the Senate would do more than it had in the past. This Senate will be different. The Senate is going to debate and address the epidemic of gun violence in this country, the Democrat said on the chamber's floor. He did not give any timing for the legislation, however, and noted the Senate had a lot on its agenda, and he was not defi uh, definite about whether an assault weapons ban would be included. So, there we go. We saw this, and I called it yesterday. It's awfully convenient right now that first we see the Robert Long thing, which does seem a little bit outrageous to be true. Oh, I was just sex addicted, so I went out and I shot up a bunch of spas at the same time that the mainstream media is going out and trying to push an anti-Asian hate narrative. But don't worry, it wasn't about anti-Asian hate. That seems like a really, really, really convenient story. I'm sorry. And then this story, which also seems very, very convenient, given the fact that we're looking at, oh, HR8. Let's do that again. So we'll look at see what's happening with that here. I've got a little bit of a silver lining, though, from this here, from The Hill. Manchin says he doesn't support House Pass background check bill from Jordan Carney. Senator Joe Manchin said Tuesday that he does not support House Pass legislation to expand background checks to all gun sales. What the House passed? Not at all, Manchin said when asked if he supports the legislation. 
The House passed two bills this month, one to extend the window for completing background checks before a gun sale, and a second that will extend background checks to all sales and transfers. However, the second bill provides exemptions, including transfers between family members, responding to an immediately, uh, immediate threat, rather, or temporary transfer for hunting. Manchin, however, suggested that he wanted a bill to provide a bigger carve-out for private sales between individuals who know each other. I come from a gun culture. I'm a law-abiding gun owner, Manchin said, adding that he supports basically saying that commercial transactions should be background checked. You don't know a person. If I know a person, no, Manchin said. Manchin and Pat Toomey previously offered legislation to expand background checks, to reload the page and start back over from the top. Manchin and Senator Pat Toomey previously offered legislation to expand background checks to all commercial sales, including those at a gun show or on the internet. You know, that gun show loophole that doesn't exist. And the other thing to go along with that too, by the way, as far as buying them on the internet, and this is, this is ridiculous, the fact that Manchin and Toomey are both coming out and doing this because they should know full well that, that that's what's covered here. If you buy a gun, and I've looked into GunBroker for this. I've never bought a gun off GunBroker, but if you go right onto GunBroker.com, right on the front of the page, they will tell you that if you are buying this firearm, they will not send it to your house. Even if you live in state, I believe. I've never tried it, once again. But even if you live in the same state as the seller, you cannot buy that and have it sent to your house. No way, no how. It goes out to your federally firearms licensed dealer who conducts the background check on you as per your state's legal requirements. And then the firearm dealer decides whether or not you get the gun. Gunbroker.com is not a way to bypass the background check. It's just a way to bypass uh, inventory restrictions that are going on around the country right now. That's all that it is. And the same thing with the gun show loophole. There is no gun show loophole. There is no federally, uh, federal firearms licensed dealer who will go sit at a table at a gun show and hand you a gun if he doesn't know you for cash and bypass what the government says you need to do. There is none. There are zero firearms dealers that would do that. Do you know why? Because it would probably cost them their fucking license and their livelihood. And then they'd have to go work at Dick's Sporting Goods selling volleyballs to people. Of the GOP senators who supported the bill in 2013, only two are still in the Senate. Toomey and Senator Susan Collins of Maine. Collins reiterated Tuesday that she still supports the proposal. If gun legislation will be able to pass Congress, is back under the spotlight after a shooting at a grocery store, left 10 people dead, including a police officer, and even less than a week after eight people were killed in three Atlanta-area shootings. Senate Majority Leader Charles U. Schumer has vowed to put the House bill on the floor for a vote. However, it's unlikely that Democrats would be able to get 60 votes since the, uh, that requires the support of 10 Republicans. And that's where we're sitting here, too, especially with... And I said this yesterday already. I said, I have to wonder if... The, and 
I said it on Monday on the Red Net Show, too. I do have to wonder if some of this, and this was even back when we were talking about the Atlanta shooting, if this was going to push pressure onto cinema and mansion to overturn the filibuster. Not necessarily for this particular bill, even though, I mean, the writing is right in this article. We need 10 Republicans to get on board with this legislation. Yes, the writing is on the wall for that. But if you get that filibuster gone just for those, oh, just for this one bill here, then the flood of Joe Biden's legislative agenda comes pouring out of the woodwork, going at, going to these people. And that's all that they want to do now is keep passing more and more laws, more and more bills, and just keep passing, keep passing, keep passing. And it was funny to me. I mentioned in the Discord, and Saint actually wants me to tell everyone how I really feel off this here because I see a lot of people over on Twitter right now who are very, very eager to demonize Joe Manchin, to bully Joe Manchin, to say that Joe Manchin's basically a Republican and why is he even in the Democrat Party? He's evil. He's holding up the filibuster. He's a racist because he's holding up the filibuster. And all I have to say is, you dumb motherfuckers, if I was you, I would be kissing Joe Manchin's white, wrinkly fucking ass right now, begging him to get on board in as nice as, oh, you want this for your district? Hey, let's say nice things about Joe Manchin. Well, no, he's full state. He's not a district. Let's say all the nice things that we can say about West Virginia. Let's go in court and say, see how nice we can call you, Joe Manchin, because we want you to pass the filibuster repeal. We want you to get rid of the filibuster. Come on. I mean, I would be smooth as silk to this guy if it was me in this situation. Because it's very, very easy for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, but she's on the firing squad too, to go back and bully these people and all of a sudden, whoops, we did a Jeff Van Drew. Hey, the Turtle Man is the majority leader again. And the Turtle Man gets up off his desk. UNLIMITED POWER! Because then he's the majority leader once again. So, just a lot of stuff to go along with this. But we gotta talk about some other stuff here. We will continue to follow the story as it goes. Let's talk about the markets. And the economy. Starting with CNN Business. Yellen and Powell praise stimulus, but warn that more needs to be done. From Paul R. LaMonica. The two most powerful economic authorities in America told lawmakers that although the U.S. economy is on the mend thanks to several rounds of stimulus, there's more work to be done. Janet Yellen, the current Treasury Secretary, and Jerome Powell, who succeeded Yellen as Federal Reserve Chair during the Trump administration, each stressed in prepared remarks that the economic pain caused by the co excuse me, the COVID-19 pandemic would have been worse if not for quick moves in 2020 by Congress and the Fed. Make no mistake, that means printing a bunch of money and driving inflation and borrowing a bunch of money from other countries. While the economic fallout has been real and widespread, the worst was avoided by swift and vigorous action. Powell said in a statement released by the Fed, but he also emphasized that the recovery is far from complete. So, at the Fed, we will continue to provide the economy the support that it needs for as long as it takes. Powell and Yellen both spoke in front of the White House Financial Services Committee Tuesday afternoon. And both are set to testify again before the Senate Banking Committee Wednesday morning.
So probably coming up here in just a little bit. Stocks, which were flat before the testimony began, fell during the hearing and were broadly lower in the late afternoon trading. The Fed slashed interest rates to zero last March and is widely expected to keep them near those historically low levels until next year. If not longer, the central bank also launched several lending programs for businesses. That, coupled with CARES Act from Congress and Trump administration last year, as well as a newly signed $1.9 trillion package signed by President Biden, have helped stabilize the job market and consumer spending. The recovery has progressed more quickly than generally expected and looks to be strengthening, Powell said. Powell noted that the housing market has more than fully recovered from the downturn. No, it hasn't. As somebody who can see the MLS listings, no, it fucking hasn't. And that consumer spending on goods and business investments and manufacturing production have also picked up noticeably. But Yellen, who, by the way, is the first woman to serve as Fed chair, because that's important, as well as the first female Treasury Secretary, urged lawmakers to do even more. We're meeting at a very hopeful moment of the economy, but it's still a daunting one. While we're seeing signs of recovery, we should be clear-eyed about the hole we're digging out of, Yellen told Congress, according to her prepared remarks. She noted that the country is still down nearly 10 million jobs from its pre-pandemic peak, and that there's still some very deep pockets of pain in the economy, including millions of people who are behind on mortgage or rent payments and who don't have enough food to eat. Yeah, that housing market really recovered, given the fact that people are over a year behind on their rent at this point. Over a year behind. And yes, as a... Uh, as Intranix said at the beginning of the show, when Yellen and Powell come out and start talking about the economy, telling us what they're going to do about it, it's kind of embarrassing that I can never whistle in my life. That little bit of a airy whistle that you heard there is uh, the best that I could ever do. Let's keep talking about these guys. I've got one here from NPR for you. Fed chair touts much improved economy one year after stocks hit pandemic air low. This is from Scott Horsley. Remember, NPR needs your money, so your money is our money, comrade. Give them our money so that they can continue to quietly talk about the way that they can spread communism throughout the country. NPR. National Progressive Radio. <clears throat> the economy is staging a strong but incomplete recovery. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is set to tell Congress on Tuesday, exactly a year after the stock market hit their lowest level during the pandemic. The economy is... I love it when the, the stock market goes down, it's the economy. But when it's coming back up under Republican, it's not the economy. It's not the economy, by the way. It's just a projection of what people who play with money every day think the economy is going to do in the short-term future. The economy is now much improved, Powell, uh, Powell is set to say, according to prepared remarks, thanks to swift and vigorous action by Congress and the central bank to avoid an even more crippling downturn. But Powell is also set to say the recovery is far from complete. Powell is appearing before the House Committee Tuesday along with uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. They will then appear before a Senate panel on Wednesday. So a lot of this is just uh, 
before the article that we read previously and they're still coming out here and saying oh no we did great you guys but you know just let us print a little bit more money okay print a little bit more we'll get a little bit more from china and everything is going to be fine <clears throat> so we're actually not going to go too far into this one here let's talk a little bit about what the, the hill has to say with us though Yellen defends raising taxes in a fair way to fund infrastructure plan from Sylvan Lane. No, I don't want to read the Hill's 1230 report. Go away. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Tuesday defended President Biden's expected push to raise taxes for corporations and high-earning individuals to help fund a massive infrastructure spending package as the economy recovers from COVID-19. During an appearance before the House Financial Services Committee, Yellen said it's essential for the U.S. to raise revenues in a fair way to support the spending that this economy needs to be competitive and productive. A package that consists of investments in people, investments in infrastructure, will help to create good jobs in the American economy and change the tax structure to help pay for those programs, she told lawmakers. Biden is planning to propose roughly $3 trillion in spending focused on revamping the U.S. infrastructure, creating more domestic manufacturing jobs, adapting the U.S. to climate-related risks, and expanding the education and job training. The proposal will likely be paired with an increase to the corporate income tax, which is a job killer, by the way, the top individual on income tax rate, and taxes on capital gains, which are job killers, by the way. While Democrats are eager to make a massive investment in the U.S. economy, Republicans have fiercely criticized them for pursuing trillions more in spending after just passing a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill along partisan lines. GOP lawmakers also argue that raising taxes as the economy works to rebound from the pandemic will disrupt the recovery. But boy, it'll sure get more and more people on that sweet, sweet government dole, won't it? And this is, this is where I'm saying, because... This really does look at this point like they're specifically trying to wreck the economy. I can't find any other strategy with this. Other than saying, okay, we need to wreck the economy because we need to have more people out of a job at this point. I can't see any other path for this. The hardest part for this here with me is I always try to find... I told you guys a couple weeks ago how much I loved Cobra Kai. And the fact that everybody here in there is morally gray. And you could tell in the writing that all the characters were just out there trying to protect themselves and their own interests and their own families. And I like to apply that thought to everybody. That no matter what, no matter how bad the plan is, the person is really just trying to do what's best for themselves and the people in government are actually trying to do what's best for the country. I'm looking at proposals like this and I can't do that. I can't look at this and say these people are actually trying to do what's best for the country. They're trying to tell you what's best for the country and what possibly could be done for that. But they're not doing what's best for the country. It's, this almost seems like they're sitting around in a shadowy room smoking cigars and saying, yeah, we'll put more and more people out of a job and then, then they'll be begging for housing assistance and socialized medicine and UBI and all the stuff that we can give them. Get them on the government dole and they'll vote Democrat forever. This is, this is the level of stuff where I'm seeing where people actually might be evil. And I don't want to see, I want to see the morally gray characters in this soap opera that we call the government. 
I don't want to see evil people. But when I look at this, what they're saying, raising taxes as the economy works to rebound will disrupt the recovery. Well, let's just keep raising the taxes anyway. Let's raise that corporate tax rate and then tell people that they have to hire people at $15, $20, $30 an hour. I don't see how this works. I wish I could be in the room with some of these people to see them propose some of this stuff. Not what they're doing in front of Congress, mind you, because that's cleaned up with the cameras, but what they're saying behind closed doors. I wish I could be a fly on the wall for some of this. All right. We got to keep going here, though. But that's what they're doing. All right. I've got another one here from NPR because I thought this one was interesting. And if you didn't give enough money to NPR on the last article, make sure you do so on this article because they need your money. I'm sorry, comrade. I mean our money to transmit those wonderful progressive communist ideas around the country in soft, soothing tones. National Progressive Radio writes out, Senators Duckworth and Hirono will block Biden nominees over lack of AAPI representation. This is from Barbara Sprunt, and I don't know what AAPI is right now, but I think we're going to learn together. Let's listen to what NBR has to say. Outraged by the lack of Asian American representation in President Biden's administration. Whoops, almost yanked my earphones out. I don't even know if I have any video for this, but we'll keep going. President uh, Democratic Senators Tammy Duckworth and Maisie Hirono have pledged to vote no on any White House nominees who aren't diverse candidates. There's no AAPI representation in the cabinet, Duckworth of Illinois told Capitol Hill reporters Tuesday afternoon. There's not a single AAPI in a cabinet position. That's unacceptable. Duckworth, who is Thai American, said she had been talking to the White House for months over concerns about the lack of representation of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, even giving the White House names of well-qualified AAPI candidates who never even got a phone call. Why does it have to be about skin color with you people? Why does everything you do have to be about skin color at this point? I still don't understand that. Let's get the best people in for the job and worry about what their skin color is later as we write the history books after the fact. But that doesn't seem to be the way that anybody looks at the world right now. Biden pledged to build the most diverse cabinet in history, and about half of his cabinet picks have been non-white. Speaking about Duckworth's decision on Tuesday, Biden said, We have the most diverse cabinet in history. We have a lot of Asian Americans. Look at, look at my vice president, okay? She's Asian-American when it's convenient for her, when she's not being black. It's, it's convenient for her, so let's just say that she's Asian-American, okay? We have a lot of Asian-Americans that are in the cabinet and at sub-cabinet levels. There are no Asian-Americans at Biden's cabinet and just a handful in top positions, like U.S. Trade Representative and Surgeon General. Duckworth said her frustration hit a breaking point after a call Monday evening with Biden aides during which she said a White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Jed O'Malley, Dillon, pointed to Vice President Harris's South Asian heritage. Ding, 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 just like I said, when it's convenient. <clears throat> Last night was a trigger for me, Duckworth said, to be told that 
Well, you have Kamala Harris. We're very proud of her. You don't need anybody else. It's insulting. Duckworth noted that she had heard that sentiment from the administration multiple times. That's not something you would say to the Black Caucus. Well, you have Kamala. Well, yeah, because she's African-American when it's convenient. <clears throat> We're not going to put any more African-Americans on the cabinet because you have Kamala. Why would you say that to the AAPI? And Kamala's not even African-American. <laughs> After the call, she said she notified the administration of her decision to cast no votes until they figure this out. She said that she will still vote for racial minorities and LGBTQ nominees. Duckworth added that Biden had left the call before the comment was made and that he had been caring and thoughtful and humane when he talked about what AAPIs have been going through. Come on, man. I'm... I wonder if this is going to get me shut down on YouTube. This particular Biden administration. Come on, man. I mean, I, I'll, I can look into some of them Chinamen for you, okay? If, if you want a Chinaman in there, I'll, I'll go find one. Watching YouTube to go down in three, two. Oh, it's still up. Hirono of Hawaii echoed Duckworth's comments, telling reporters that she plans on joining Duckworth in a no on non-diverse nominees until the White House commits that there will be more diversity representation in the cabinet and in senior White House positions. You know what's amazing about this? They're talking about diversity in skin color and in how you pee and who you fuck, that kind of diversity. They're not talking about diversity of thought because, let me guess, there's not going to be any diversity of thought in any of all this. So those two are standing one of the biggest chances of holding up Biden's uh, cabinet at this point, and we thought it was going to be Manchin. <clears throat> All right, I've got one here from The Blaze. VP Harris slated for one-on-one -on -one with Bill Clinton to discuss empowering women and girls. You read that right. Harris is slated for a one-on-one -on -one with Bill Clinton to discuss empowering women and girls. Hey, man, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, okay? Don't hit me, Hillary. From Breck Dumas. Vice President Kamala Harris is scheduled to sit down with former President Bill Clinton for a one-on-one -on -one conversation at a Clinton Foundation event this week where the two will discuss empowering women and girls. Give me one second. Sorry about that. Political reporter Christopher Cadelgo broke the news on Twitter sharing that a press release touting an event for the Clinton Global Initiative University has on its Friday afternoon schedule a one-on-one -on -one conversation with President Clinton and Vice President Kamala Harris on the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on women and empowering women and girls in the U.S. and around the world. The online schedule for the event held in conjunction with Harris's alma mater, Howard University does not list her. Twitter users had a field day with the news. Most expressed that it is laughable to ask Clinton's authority on the topic of empowering women and girls. Hey, man, you know, I, I empowered women and girls. Look how powerful and rich Monica Lewinsky is now. You know, all them lawsuits and all, all the money that she got from a tell-all book, I, I did empower that woman. I empowered her all the way. 
Given his famous philandering, numerous accusations of sexual assault and close previous relationship with the late convicted sexual predator Jeffrey Epstein, who, by the way, did not kill him kill himself. One person joked that Monica Lewinsky and Ghislaine Maxwell will be calling in via Zoom for the panel. Someone else joked on the next that schedule would be Harvey Weinstein discussing women in the workplace. Okay, that's actually funny. And another said it would be followed by Anthony Weiner to, to discuss youth outreach. Oh, <clears throat> oh man, I just said Chinaman on the air, and even I found that in bad taste. Oof. Oh, the Wiener one was too far. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, no. And it got worse. Ah. Refreshments will be supplied by the Cosby Foundation. I've offended myself by reading this. Wow. Others were outraged by the decision, with one follower tweeting, This is sickening. Bill Clinton used the totality of his time in public office, using power to procure sex from young women at the start of their careers and then burying them. He is credibly accused of forceful rape and sexual assault. Shame on Kamala Harris. VP should cancel this. Someone else added, Tell VP and Billy Boy this is beyond tone deaf. It's an insult. One person commented, agreeing that the event was a bad call for the part of Harris's people, writing, can't believe whoever booked this for Cammy didn't pause for just a second to say, should we really have Bill discussing this with the vice president? Maybe they'll fly Monica into the audience for open question portion of the uh, program. Oof. Oh, I still can't get over that wiener comment. Oh, that is in bad taste. I'm telling you, man, I'll empower all the women. I'll empower every last one of them. But I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Okay, yeah, I actually did. <laughs> Alright, so that's what we're seeing from that. I got another one here from The Hill. It's a Hill-heavy episode today. I saw this, like, seconds before I hit the Go Live button, and I thought you guys would enjoy this one here. The Hill reports, Biden sees himself as a two-term president. Yes, Joe Biden, come on, man. Uh, I, I I wake up every morning, and I, I got to ask Jill where I am. That Biden. I got hairy legs. I turn blonde in the sun. I love it when kids jump up in my lap. That Joe Biden sees himself as a two-term president. Joe Biden campaigned on being a transition president during a pivotal time in the nation's history, saying that he'd take the reins away from former President Trump and return the country to normal. Oh, let's see. We're bombing brown kids in the Middle East. Our economy is still hemorrhaging almost a million jobs a week. There's still 10 million people out of work. And cities are burning. And people are doing mass shootings in the streets. Yeah, that does sound like we're back to normal.
But now more than ever, those around him say he'll make, a, make another bid for the presidency. He will be 82 years old. The next time the presidential campaign runs around. Do you understand the toll that this is taking on a person who already has Alzheimer's? He will be 82 years old on the next inauguration day. 82. The average age for a man is 73. He is already on borrowed time. For that matter, I don't see Trump running again. Although his sycophantic followers say that he's going to go back and do this once again. And we're going to see this rematch come back up off of this one here. But he'll be 78. I don't think there's any reason to say that he won't, said one longtime advisor to the president. Well, maybe it won't be because he won't be alive. Another Biden ally added that Biden hasn't told associates that he would be, wouldn't be running again. So we all assume that he is, the ally said, contrary to the sentiment that he'll be a one-term president, because of his own volition, or his own biology. Biden, who will turn 79 this year, is the oldest president in the nation's history. If he runs again in 2024, he will undoubtedly open discussions about his age and ability to handle the job. We've already had that discussion! He was a senile old coot the last time. Republican talking heads, including Fox News' Sean Hannity, all this will be intelligent, have already been raising questions about Biden's cognitive abilities, posing questions about who's really in charge at the White House. GOP senators implicitly sent the same message earlier this year, arguing that they could deal with Biden, but not the staff around him, particularly White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, made it more difficult Few reporters who heard those statements saw it as anything other than an effort to make it appear that it was the staff running the White House and not Biden. Biden allies say it's still early in his presidency and too early to be thinking about 2024. It's two years until the start of primary season and those close to the campaigner-in-chief stress that no one is thinking about a second presidential bid. Because the president is 78 years old and says stupid shit because he doesn't know where the fuck he is. Have at it, I guess. The memes write themselves. Enjoy. You just tripped three times climbing upstairs, and you want to say that you're a two-term... No, you are not a two-term president. You're a houseplant. All right, I've got uh, one more here from NPR because I need to get my boys' chops back down and speak a little bit more calmly. After yelling about Biden's age in the last article here, DeJoy announces 10-year reorganization of the U.S. Postal Service. This is from Brian Naylor. Get those last-minute donations in because NPR needs your money, folks. They can't spread the ideas of the left without your money. Oops, I mean our money. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is calling for longer delivery times for some first-class mail, shorter hours for some post offices, and more expensive postal rates, all part of a 10-year reorganization plan for the U.S. Postal Service he unveiled on Tuesday. 
DeJoy outlined the changes at a news conference with other Postal Service officials. This is a very positive vision, DeJoy said. If the Postal Service's long-term financial woes are not addressed, he said, the USPS will run out of cash and require a government bailout. Under the plan, a small percentage of post offices would have their hours reduced, and a small percentage of city stations would be closed. DeJoy said that he is not in a position right now to say how much the price of a first-class stamp would rise, but that the service is counting on $44 billion in new pricing authority. Kristen Stever, the Postal Service's Executive Vice President, said the change in delivery times would affect only the fringes of our network. She said that 70% of the first-class mail will still be delivered in two or three days under the proposal. 20% of what she identified as coast-to-coast mail might arrive in uh, might not arrive for five days. According to the Postal Service's own standards, first-class mail is expected to be delivered on time 96% of the time, a goal it has not reached for some five years. In the December holiday rush, the on-time rate plummeted to as low as 38% for some mail, but it has since rebounded to 83% in early March, according to the Postal Service statistics. Consumers have been complaining about delayed birthday cards, bills, and prescriptions, and those complaints have reached Congress. DeJoy told a congressional panel last month that the Postal Service lost more than $9 billion last year and owes some $80 billion in unfunded liabilities because of a congressional-imposed mandate that it prepay the health care costs of its future retirees. And that is, I mean, it's good that the Postal Service is still there. That is guaranteed. I believe that's actually guaranteed in the Constitution that we have a U.S. Postal Service. But it is hemorrhaging money. So we've got to do something. Yeah, it is just absolutely hemorrhaging money at this point. I am not an advocate for shut the post office down, although given the fact that it's hemorrhaging money, if it was anything other than the government, it would already be gone. If this was UPS operated the same way that the U.S. Postal Service is operated, it would be out of business like that. It would never be able to survive this way. So we got to do something. We got we to change things around a little bit and see if we can't get this to run somewhat smoothly here. The post office will never turn a profit. It's a government agency. It's not required to. But at some point, we should get it structured to the point where it doesn't lose billions of dollars a year. I could see millions of dollars. I could see that as an acceptable compromise. To go with something that's guaranteed in the Constitution, if it is, don't quote me on that because I don't know. But I believe it is uh, guaranteed in the Constitution. And if it is, then yes, okay, I could see millions of dollars of loss a year. But billions, come on. Let's let's figure out where we can go, restructure this. I don't know if DeJoy is the answer. He did get his job because he was a Trump uh, appointee and a big Trump donor. I'm willing to give him a shot and hear him out but I don't know if he's the answer or not. But let's see. Let's hear him out. Let's see what he's got to say. Let's see. Let's put some of his ideas into place and see if they actually work. And if they don't, we kick his bald ass to the curb and try again. But we got to do something different at this point. All right. So that's what we have to say with that. From the New York Post. Bernie Sanders says he's not comfortable with Trump's Twitter ban. Bernie Sanders gets a little bit of wood on the ball every once in a while. I still think he's economically an idiot, but he does have his finger on the pulse of what is uh, socially expedient. 
And I'll give him that all day long, all day, every day. I will give him that. I won't let him anywhere near a checkbook. But I'll at least give that he's got his finger on the pulse of the social aspect of things. This is from Jesse O'Neill. Senator Bernie Sanders said recently that he's not comfortable with former President Trump's Twitter ban, arguing it could lead to suppression of users across the political spectrum. The Vermont Independent found common ground with many Republicans who accused the social media network of left-leaning bias and political censorship after they banned Trump in the wake of the January 6th U.S. Capitol selfie vest. Hey, we got into the Capitol chamber! Sanders made the comments to New York Times, a former newspaper columnist Ezra Klein on Tuesday, after Trump aides announced the former president would soon return to social media with his own platform. But you have a racist, sexist, xenophobe, pathological liar, an authoritarian, someone who doesn't believe in the rule of law. This is a bad news guy, Sanders said. But if you're asking me, do I feel particularly comfortable that the then president of the United States could not express his views on Twitter. I, I don't feel comfortable about that. I do feel comfortable when I eat this wonderful tapioca pudding cup, though. Sanders said that Twitter should not be used for authoritarian purposes and insurrection, but added, tomorrow it could be somebody else getting banned, and who has a very different point of view. Twitter kicked Trump off the platform on January 8th, witness, uh, writing at the time, after a close review of our recent tweets from at Real Donald Trump account and the context around them, specifically how they're being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. <clears throat> on Sunday, Trump aide Jason Miller said that Trump will be back on his own social media platform in two or three months. So, I mean, he's just going to come back and go around Twitter at this point and do his own thing, which... I mean, he's a private citizen. He can absolutely do that. So, I mean, balls and strikes on the guy if he comes out and he he understands the free speech aspect of this. If they go after one, they can go after anybody. As long as their big corporate donors and government donors tell them, yes, we want this person silenced. Doesn't matter the reason. It could be Sanders at some point coming down because he doesn't believe in the economic agenda of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. It could be him. It could be Kamala. It probably won't be Kamala, but it could be. It could be any other of these people because they shut down the president of the United States whom they were told they were not allowed to do, whom they were told his tweets were public record. So it could be anybody at this point. It could be me. It's probably going to be me at some point. All right couple more here, then we'll do something I'm thankful for and head on out of here for the day. From MSN News. Hugh Grant accuses the government of exploiting the pandemic to enrich their friends and donors. Hugh Grant has accused the government of using the COVID-19 pandemic as the opportunity to enrich its friends and donors. The actor, who frequently uses Twitter to air his criticisms of Boris Johnson's government, shared a report about an IT company that was allegedly paid millions across multiple coronavirus contracts and has extensive links to the conservatives. A tweet that <clears throat> the thread explains. Softcat PIC and an IT infrastructure services company awarded 
16.2 million pounds since September of 2020. Over 11 different COVID-related agreements. These range from work in the health service to supporting the student loans company and DWP. Grant retweeted a thread commenting, Always heartwarming to watch this government exploit a pandemic to enrich their friends and donors. When approached by the Independent for comment, a cabinet office spokesperson said, Non-executive directors declare any relevant interest upon appointment, which are transparently published annually, and they follow the code of conduct board members of public bodies. Their independent advice brings an external perspective to scrutinize the business of government and ensure value for the taxpayers' money. <clears throat> the Four Weddings and a Funeral Star has condemned the government for its handling of the coronavirus crisis on numerous occasions. Last May, after retweeting a string of posts criticizing Johnson and the Tories, he shared a clip taken from ITV daytime program this morning, which saw presenter Philip Schofield ask the health secretary, Matt Hancock, whether he was really saying that people could see their own uh, their two parents separately 10 minutes apart, but not together under new lockdown guidance. But don't you see, that's utterly bonkers, the president, uh, presenter said, with Grant in agreement, as he seemingly replied to Schofield's comment. It is, they are, we're fucked, he wrote. And honestly, with that, I... The government on both sides, because we saw a lot of very left-wing governments over here on our side of the pond doing the same thing, using the COVID pandemic to enrich their rich donor buddies. I know that a lot of people come on and say, <laughs> I owned you. Walmart doesn't give to Democrats. Well, they do. They will give to anybody who will put more restriction on business to make sure that their small business competitors can't get up out of their own way. And Walmart continues to lead the industry in putting low-income workers to work. And your mom-and-pop shop, your mom-and-pop restaurant, those were considered to be dangerous for you to be around. But you could walk into your McDonald's and your Walmart and buy your fill of whatever the hell you wanted. Walmart, Amazon, and several others. Several of, the, of these other big, huge business companies got massively richer during the coronavirus pandemic. The government picked winners and losers. It was the same thing with the mask mandate coming down from governments. Now, before Tony Evers, and I can speak for Wisconsin because I'm here. Before Tony Evers came out with the mask mandate, there were several businesses around Janesville and especially up in Dane County, because Dane County did their own mask mandate before, but even before they did a mask mandate, several of the private businesses in Dane County went up and decided that they wanted to have a mask mandate in their stores for private property. And people stopped going to those stores. And now the people were starting to pick the winners and losers, rather than the government. The people were interfering on the government's territory at that point. So then we started to see statewide mask mandates, so that the rich could still get richer. And I still specifically choose places to go to that don't enforce the state's mask mandate that we still have in place here. Because nobody can stand up to Tony Evers at this point. So, I mean, Grant is right. He absolutely is. All right, we got to keep going. I got a couple more here. From Military.com, lawmaker urges VA to take away benefits of vets who assaulted the Capitol. From Steve Bainan, 
a disproportionate percentage of the pro-Trump mob that assaulted the U.S. Capitol on January 6th were veterans and active duty service members. Now a key lawmaker is calling for them to be stripped of all benefits. Representative Ruben Gallego, who serves on an arm uh, Services and Veterans Affairs Committee stressed in a letter to the Department of Veterans Affairs Secretary of Dennis uh, McDonough that insurrectionists should not enjoy benefits they no longer deserve. So once you've joined the military and resigned from the military, you are still not free at this point to have your own freedom of speech is what I'm hearing from Secretary Dennis McDonough. I'm, I'm sorry, Representative Ruben Gallico. The behavior of these individuals is not representative of the large population of American veterans, said Gallego, a Marine vet uh, veteran. Yet many of the veterans and service members who attack their own government actively and enthusiastically enjoy special benefits given to them by their fellow citizens. As of late February, about 13% of all rioters facing charges have military background, but veterans made up only about 7% of the U.S. population in 2018, according to the Census Bureau data. The situation is unjust, Gallego said. Any veteran or service member who stormed the Capitol on January 6th forfeited their moral entitlement to privileged benefits. Normally, if a veteran is convicted of a felony and imprisoned for more than 60 days, a disability compensation is reduced. Veterans rated 20% disabled or more are limited to 10% disability rate. According to the VA, for a veteran whose disability rating is 10%, the payment is reduced by one half. GI Bill benefits also are limited for felons. Gallego requested that Attorney General Merrick Garland coordinate with the V8 and provide the identities of veterans involved in the siege. He also requested Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to investigate and prosecute any service member or veteran involved in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And that actually you should do because you are correct. You are not supposed to, if you are active duty, engage in politics. I don't know how they get around... Um, Tulsi Gabbard at that point. So that actually, the la that very last part is something that should be looked into. However, for the people who serve the country, especially if they're not going to be convicted, that I want to see. Wait until the conviction comes out. And if there is actually a felony conviction for this, or if it gets tossed out, then we will have the address because it actually is on the Veterans Affairs books as to what to do under a felony. But to completely single these people out and say, you get nothing after these people signed a contract and said, I will offer up my life for my country in exchange for this set of benefits that the country has promised to people who have offered their lives up for their country. I will absolutely offer my life up for my country for this. Let's sign a contract for this and make it legal. If the government's going to renege on its contract, then what they did in the Capitol, they had every right to do. I'm sorry. If the government's going to come out and say, we don't like your politics or your beliefs, so we're going to back out on our contract for that, full stop. That's not how this works. <clears throat> Once again, in the contract, it's explicitly stated that, yes, you can lose some of your benefits if you are a convicted felon. And we can address that as people are convicted or acquitted throughout the trials that they go through. But to just flat out say that anybody who was in this doesn't get anything, no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that, government. You signed a contract, you will honor your contract. 
All right. I've got one here from Foreign News here. Actually, I looked at this and I thought this was like a military blockade, but no, this is just people who have no idea how to run any sort of engineering and did something they probably shouldn't have done and got stuck. From BBC, Egypt's Suez Canal, blocked by a huge container ship. Uh, BBC does not give an author. The owners of the 400-meter-long, 1,312-foot vessel say it ran aground sideways after being hit by strong winds. Egypt says it has reopened the canal's older channel to divert traffic amid fears it could remain blocked for days. The incident has already created a long tailbacks on the waterway, stopping dozens of other vessels from passing. About 10% of global trade passes through the Suez Canal, which connects the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and provides the shortest sea link between Asia and Europe. The Ever Given, registered in Panama, was bound for the port city of Rotterdam in the Netherlands from China and was passing northwards through the canal on its way to the Mediterranean. The 200,000-ton ship, built in 2018 and operated by the Taiwanese transport company Evergreen Marine, ran aground and became lodged sideways across the waterway about 7.40 local time, 5.40 GMT, on Tuesday. At 400 meters long, the length of four football pitches, and 59 meters wide, the ship has blocked the path of other vessels, which are now trapped in lines both directions. The tracking website, Vessel Finder, shows the buildup of marine traffic on both the northern and southern sides of the blocked waterway. Yep, there's that. And there's that. Evergreen Marine said the ship was suspected of being hit by a sudden strong wind, causing the hull to deviate and accidentally hit the bottom and run aground. The Suez Canal Authority said it was working to refloat the giant ship, using rescue and tug units, according to AFP News Agency, its chairman, Admiral Osama Rabi, also said that they had reopened an older section of the canal to ease the bottleneck of marine traffic caused by the incident. Yeah, and I don't know what their policy is for large ships going through the Suez Canal, but it just, it seems to me at this point, after seeing this happening right here, that if your boat is wider than the canal, just in case of emergency, like getting hit like a, by a sudden blast of wind, if your boat is longer than the canal is wide, maybe you shouldn't be running your boat through there. Maybe you should find another route. I respect the fact that they are trying to get in here and try to get this through, no matter what, to try and keep everything flowing. But yeah, we see what happens now when your boat is longer than the width of the canal and you get stuck. So maybe, maybe think about that for the next time. I don't know. That's just the way that I would do it if it was me. But yeah, actually, when I first saw this headline, I was like, oh shit. Somebody's doing a blockade in the Middle East. And we're going to have to run to the rescue again. But no, that's that's not what this was. There it is too, by the way. That's a big-ass boat. All right. Last one. And this kind of goes on to what we're doing on the 17th. So I want to make sure. And just point out, because we talked about... I don't know if we've talked about it on mic, but Elaine and I have talked about the fact that I mean, the depression and everything that goes with this, we talked about, I, yeah, we did talk about it on Mike, but we talked about it with the Markle thing that isn't just for poor people. 
who lost their jobs. I mean, some of the richest people in the world are still suffering for some, uh, from some of this here. So that's why we're doing the fundraiser on the 17th, because we got to talk about some of this stuff. Texas Roadhouse CEO Kent Taylor dies after COVID-19 struggle. Kent Taylor, founder and CEO of the Texas Roadhouse restaurant chain, has died. He was 65, and the uh, family and company says he took his own life after suffering from symptoms related to COVID-19, including severe tinnitus. Taylor's family and the company on Sunday confirmed his death in a statement. Tinnitus is a common condition involving the ringing or other noises in one or both ears. Experts say the coronavirus can exacerbate tinnitus problems. Kent battled and fought hard like the former track champion that he was, but the suffering that greatly intensified in recent days became unbearable, the statement said. I got a feeling there was something more going on with this, because this guy had the money to go to the best doctors in the world. So I'm, I'm going to go right on on the limb and say that there was probably a little bit more going on, that the uh, family wants to keep private, and that is their right to do. Taylor recently committed to funding a clinical study to help military members suffering with tinnitus. The statement said, Kent leaves an unmatched legacy as a people-first leader, which is why he often said that Texas Roadhouse was a people company that just happened to serve steaks. The statement said, Taylor opened the first Texas Roadhouse restaurant in 1993 in Clarksville, Indiana, coming up on the idea on a cocktail napkin. It currently operates 610 restaurants in 49 states and 10 other countries. Texas Roadhouse is based in Taylor's hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Kent is a uh, kind of generous spirit, and his constant driving force, whether it was quietly helping a friend or building one of America's great companies in Texas Roadhouse, Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher said on Twitter, he was a maverick entrepreneur who embodied the values of never giving up and putting others first. Taylor, who died Thursday, is survived by his parents, Powell and Marilyn Taylor, three children and five grandchildren, Texas Roadhouse spokesman Travis Doster, said in a small private service as planned this week. And there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, or text HELLO to 741741, the crisis text line, if you do need help, by the way. And yes, as I mentioned at the top of the show, as I mentioned at the top of every show, we are doing a fundraiser to try and slow down some of the stuff that's happening, because it is happening all too often. As the economy remains closed, kids are locked in their homes. They're not allowed to see their friends. We are social people at this point. We do need the human contact, and we need to reach out and help people. So, And that will go right into the thing that I'm thankful for as well, on top of this here. So let's change up the scene. Let's do a thing I'm thankful for and head on out of here. And throw those Fs up in the chat too, but or, uh, for Kent. Get those Fs up. All right. And the last thing that we do on Wednesday is something that I'm thankful for. And I'm just looking back off of this. Elaine, uh, Elaine and I talked for probably a good hour the other night after the Red Net show about possible guests that she could bring forward. She jumped into this fundraiser that we're doing on the 17th, which I went into this thinking and full well expecting that this was going to be my thing. I was going to do this all alone and figure out how to organize and orchestrate bathroom breaks and food throughout the day, all on my own. And Elaine jumped in feet first and said, okay, let's do this. Let's get this done and let's make this massive, massive thing out of something that I thought was just going to be me, be me playing video games and talking to some of my friends throughout the day. 
to something where we could actually raise a very good, decent amount of money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I have been in contact with the AFSP. They have, uh, their director regionally has moved on to bigger and better things. We all know what that's corporate code for, so I don't have to go into this, but their new director and I had a nice long conversation. I told her what I do on this channel normally, where we talk politics and it's not necessarily from a left-wing perspective. I'm not a Republican, but uh, most progressives would assume that I'm a Republican at this point. But her and I had a nice long conversation. She's willing to put the name of her organization onto our fundraiser on this channel here. And the number of people who've come forward, Jessica Green, Stephen Ignoramus, Mr. Behavior, my friend Epic Hans, who is completely non-political, still wants to come onto this channel and discuss to try and raise money for suicide prevention. Um, Brian Nichols, who is also reaching out to Joel Getz, who does work for suicide prevention off to the side. And Elaine, reaching out to find more people to come, more high-profile people to come in and draw a bigger audience for this. We're looking for a huge audience off of this. Um, we're looking to get $1,000, and a certain person on the network will shave his beard. $2,000, and this haircut goes away because I am robbing from one charity to get to another off of this. But what I'm thankful for today, I have the best friends in the world. I came up and said that I want to do a fundraiser for suicide prevention, which is a even outside of the pandemic, is a very, very near and dear cause to my heart because I have struggled with it before in my life. I have, and I'm, I'm planning on telling my story of one of the most prominent times that I did attempt. It's going to be later in the evening. I'm going to bear it all to you guys, but I am so thankful. I have the best friends in the world because I said that I wanted to do this fundraiser, and literally everybody I asked has jumped on board unless they had a previous engagement like the Freckles and Pritchard, which I don't blame them for that at all either, by the way, because they're both, I know what they're both doing on that weekend. And I would urge them to do that instead of coming out of the fundraiser because it is, it's family stuff. I have the best friends in the world and that's, I mean, Quest Fanning is going to be here, not even knowing what we are going to do. Quest Fanning says, I'm in the hairy chested libertarian. I'm in the best people in the world surround themselves around me. And I'm so thankful for that. We're going to make this a huge event. We're going to make this a huge success. And we are going to try and fund these programs to try and help people, to try and get outreach, to try and make sure that fewer and fewer, we're never going to eliminate it all the way. That's a sad reality of life. But to make it so that fewer and fewer people have to lose a loved one to his own hands. We're going to do this. And I'm so thankful for everybody who's jumped in and offered their time, their services, their money, their talent to this project. We'll get something done. This is going to be great. I'm looking so forward to this, and I'm so thankful for all of you guys. And that's going to be it for the day here. So thanks, everybody, who came and hang out in the chat. Make sure if you're lurking right now, you get those last-minute messages in so I can read your name. And thank you on Friday, personally, for coming and spending the time on this channel. I know that if we get some channel growth, I'm not going to be able to do this forever. But I want to be able to do this now to make sure that you guys know that you're awesome and know that you're awesome for believing in me in this, the little morning show that could. We will see you tomorrow, 7.45 a.m. Central Time, for more Contemporary. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary.